Well, our sermon text today will be from uh, Genesis, and we are going to journey uh, in verse, uh, excuse me, chapter 8, beginning in verse 13, and we'll go through 9-7. And so do, do open your copy of God's Word. It'd be good to, to get your eyes on this as I read this aloud. Genesis chapter 8, beginning in verse 13. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you, And bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him, every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families. From the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings, ascension offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done while the earth remains, sea time and harvest, cold and heat, summer, winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand. They are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is its blood. And for your life blood. I will require a reckoning from every beast. I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by him shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. The word of the Lord. Well, there is a fundamental fallacy that dominates the modern mind, a pernicious lie that is heralded as the chief truth in our day, and that is producing a generation of anxious and bewildered youth. And the fallacy is this, that progress, that being progressive means detaching yourself from objective creational realities. Rather, being truly progressive means expressing and celebrating every subjective impulse that may bubble up at any moment. No matter how bizarre or bent 
or destructive the impulse is. No matter, if you want to be progressive, you express it and then you demand celebration of it. And though that word is used often and everywhere, the one question that is rarely asked about it is, well, then what then is the end game? What are we aiming at and when do we know when we've arrived there? Because the very word progress presupposes a clear goal that one is getting nearer to now. So unhindered, unquestioned self-expression cannot be progress by definition because no goal is ever stated in the first place. Therefore, true progress cannot come through diving headlong into a chaotic abyss of subjectivity by definition. True progress, rather, must mean making purposed, determined, observable strides towards what is true and what is good and what is beautiful objectively based on a standard outside of yourself, based on, of course, what God has said at creation. Chesterton captures this modern fallacy of progress well. He had no time for it. He wrote often of it in many pithy ways he expressed it, and this is one of those. He said, progress should mean that we are always changing the world to fit the vision. Instead, we're always changing the vision. As always, I just spent two minutes to say what he says in 10 seconds clearer than I ever could have. The Noah narrative provides a powerful contrast between these two visions of progress. So that's my point here. One, false progress as defined by man's standards, or two, genuine progress as defined by God's standards. See, before the flood, we saw a very progressive world developing in the modern, fallacious sense. Every person was doing whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted, with whomever they wanted, with no regard for God as creator, and with no regard for the wisdom by which he built the world, and with no regard for the submission he was due as their king. And we saw where that ended. That was the whole reason for the flood. It it ended with the king pronouncing judgment and the creator unmaking the world through a massive worldwide flood. Principle, false progress always leads to destruction. Rejecting the architect's drawings always brings about chaos. If you're going to be progressive, you better know what in the world God wants us aiming at. And then we saw that as the waters subsided, We saw last week that God had not just granted salvation to Noah and his family, but he was bringing them into a new and recreated world. It had moved from decreation to recreation. And and we saw that Genesis 8 comes to us really as Genesis 1, 2.0. And the overlaps are profound and, of course, intentional. And today we're going to get a look into how God defines what a progressive humanity looks like. What does it look like for for mankind to grow up a little bit, to, to mature? Because with this being a new creation, what we're going to see today is, is God giving some new declarations about the world that Noah is stepping into. But it's important for us to notice that these aren't just Noah-specific. 
Noah as the the new covenant head of, of God's people and the only humans alive now, they are words and their declarations that the Lord is now giving to humanity in general as a new level of dignity and maturity starts to arise. And, and there are at least four ways that I see this playing out in the text today. These are the themes that we're going to consider. Namely, altar, dominion, diet, and dignity. Altar, dominion, diet, and dignity. Of course, there's always more, but this is what we'll, we'll consider so with that, let's turn back to the text. The, these themes really start to emerge in verse 20. And so I'm just going to make a few comments on verses 13 through 19 of chapter 8 to kind of get us, get us moving. And, and as we begin, as we, as we began the text, we, we are immediately struck by this beautiful picture of Noah removing the ark's covering for the first time after the flood. They've been in there almost a year at this point, and he removes the covering for the first time and sees the, the new heavens and the new creation for the first time. Verse 13, in the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month. And so this is New Year's Day, not accidentally so. This is the first day of a new year and a new world. Continuing, and the waters were dried up off, the waters were dried off the earth and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked in, behold, the face of the ground was dry. And that last sentence you noticed, it literally just repeats what it had just said. And that's to draw our attention to to the glory of Noah's experience. We, we have to try to get in his skin. He's been in the ark for almost a year while chaos just goes around him. He finally can peek out and behold, the face of the ground is dry now. This is a big deal. This was Noah's eyes seeing for the first time that they made it, that, that God had held them fast through the flood and behold, the ground was, was dry. And then in verses 15 through 19, we see Noah being presented to us as a new Adam, leading his family and, and all the earth's animals into this new recreated world. And then from there, we immediately begin to see these new realities, these, these marks of true progress emerge in the new world. And we're going to look at each each theme in context in the text, and then consider an application for us as Christians today in light of that. So that's the path. The first theme, altar, altar. Verse 20, then Noah built an altar to the Lord and he took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and he offered an ascension offering. Your text says burnt. I want you to always think ascension when you see burnt offering, because that's the word it means to to go up. And that's the whole picture that's being painted is it's ascending to the Lord. We'll see that because he he smells it in a moment. Offered burnt offerings on the altar. And and this verse is pregnant with significance because the theme of altar and sacrifice becomes absolutely central 
not just to the story of Scripture generally, but to our understanding of how the gospel works, what the gospel does. Namely, that a fitting sacrifice is required for sinners to draw near to a holy God. Now, it's not until Leviticus that we will get the full download of the ceremonial laws. That's what Leviticus essentially is. It's it's a liturgical manual for how to offer proper sacrifices so that sinners can draw near to God. However, this is the first account where we get the language of altar and ascension offering that is so central to the narrative henceforth in all the scriptures. So this is a new epoch in the worship of the covenant people of God. They they are maturing. But also notice that we have no record of God requiring this altar, this offering from Noah yet. Which means, to use the Levitical language, this appears to be something of a free will offering. And here's the principle we can draw from this. A person who knows that they've been saved cannot keep from worshiping God. A person who truly grasps what God has done for them, the wrath they deserve that was averted from them, that was put on the Lord Jesus Christ, that behold, the the land was dry now because of what Christ has done, namely judgment gone. They will respond with worship. And as Noah and his people feel their feet sink into dry soil after a year on the ark, as the only people in the entire world now, you don't just go about as business as usual now. You worship. Before Noah built anything else, he built an altar to God his Savior. Before Noah tended to any of the soil, he tended to the sacrifice first. And he didn't just sacrifice one animal, but but the sacrifice came from every clean animal and every clean bird. So you remember, I think it was last week we talked about why did he bring seven pairs of clean? Maybe that was two weeks ago. Here we're starting to see. Then we brought two. Well, that animal's done forever, right? Well, I guess if there's two pairs, it'd be one left, but it would get, yeah. This was an altar filled with a great sacrifice. That's what we're seeing here. And Noah, as the patriarch of his people, saw to it that this was the first act in the new world. Communicating to his God his gratitude for his salvation and communicating to his people the centrality of worship in the life of the Christian. Christian, make no mistake, worship of God is the fountainhead of all our productive labors in this world. The rest of our lives flows out of it. If we do not make it central, our efforts and our faith will be anemic. And that's why for us, faithfully gathering on the Lord's day to renew covenant and and to offer sacrifices of praise is the most important thing in our lives. This is the primary place where we, as the people of God, are matured up more into the new humanity that we are in Jesus Christ where we are filled with with the life of heaven on the first day of week so that we actually have something to bring back down to the earth the next six days of the week. 
And as we continue on in the text, we do see the Lord respond to this ascension offering because God always responds to the sacrifices of his people. And here he responds by promising that he'll never destroy all life again like he did. And he says that that he will establish this rhythm of seasons that presumably the, the flood messed up. If they were already established, they got all wonky. Now he's saying, I'm reestablishing that. Not only that, you can count on it henceforth. This will be the liturgy of nature so that you can depend upon it as you go out to do your work. This brings us to the next theme of progress in this new world, namely dominion. Dominion. So chapter 9, verse 1 is where we see this. I, I should note, so the chapter... Spaces are not inspired. They were added much later. And this, this break is actually unhelpful because it um, separates the offering from the benediction that God gives in response. And so understand that this is actually continuing in the same stream of thought. Don't think Moses said, the one who wrote this, okay, we're done, we're moving along. God is now responding. And that's really important to see in this text. And God blessed Noah in response to that. And his sons, and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And if that sounds very familiar, it's because it is. This is the original creation mandate that the Lord now is reaffirming that he gave to Adam before the fall. And this reveals something absolutely essential for Christians to understand. Namely, that God never abandoned his original purposes for humanity after the fall. Of of fruitful multiplication, of subduing the earth and taking dominion over it to the glory of God. He didn't just scrap the dominion mandate afterwards and said, well, that's a bummer that that didn't work out. Now it's just to save humanity from hell endeavor. That's a very important part of it, I should add. Absolutely, we need that. Judgment is real. But... Christ saves us into something. Christ didn't just save us from something. Christ saves us into something, namely the kingdom of God, which we are citizens in right now. And we are tasked with, through the Spirit, fulfilling the dominion mandate to to subdue and to cultivate and to multiply and produce and to beautify our corner of the kingdom to the glory of God. We must not rend the Great Commission from the creation mandate. They are intricately connected. And evangelizing those around us is part of the project, clearly. And we're proclaiming the good news to them, the good news of the kingdom of God that they can get into now and contribute to now by bending the knee to the King, Jesus Christ, and by being reborn through the Holy Spirit. And when this happens... When someone is converted, they're now empowered by the Spirit to genuinely contribute to fulfill the cultural mandate. So Christian, your your earthly plow now has eternal consequences. Your, Your work on your keyboard is being leveraged for productive work in the kingdom that will last Forever. This is why Revelation 21 speaks of the kings of the earth bringing their glory into the new Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem is the church. 
and people get saved into the church and then contribute their glory, now sanctified and empowered by the Spirit, to spread the reign of Christ Jesus all throughout the world. And this is a huge and glorious gospel. And this post-flood restatement of that mandate helps us see this. Because remember, that, that was given before the fall. And here the Lord says it again. In fact, he puts a highlighter on it because he repeats it in verse 7 again. However, in the text, we see that the Lord doesn't just restate the dominion mandate or, or the cultural mandate. Because mankind is maturing in this new world, still fallen, he adds something to it. Verse 2 of 9 The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. And the fact that he even needs to say this suggests that perhaps it was a quite frightful reality before the fall, because this implies the animals didn't know that they were subject to man yet, and there was no fear or dread of man at least you can imply that from that. But, but now the Lord is, is bestowing a gravitas upon man where the irrational creatures know instinctively that man is in charge and that man is the king's vice-regent on earth. And there will be an instinctive fear. So when we consider this, it turns out to be a very important part of, of the dominion mandate. When those wild deers sprint off when you draw near to them, though it seems like it'd be fun to get closer to them and and pet them, that's actually God's grace upon us, keeping animals at bay so that we can actually construct civilizations without being in terror all the time. This is our reality, so we don't even think about it. But there's a reason that Jaws and and Tremors and Jurassic Park is a a, a terrible reality. It's, It's because in those movies, that fear is gone. Of man, And so this is actually a real grace, uh, something very essential to the work that we have to do. Number three, diet. Okay, so we, we see the first two themes, altar, dominion, now, now diet. So not only will the animals have a, an instinctual fear towards humans, but now verse three, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. And all God's people said, thanks be to God. Yes. <laughs> Something. Right? So before the fall, the man and the woman didn't eat meat because there was no death yet in the world. Death came through sin. Yet even after the fall, it appears that animals were still apparently off limits. But now God is giving humanity permission to enjoy the meat of animals and and interestingly this new freedom is not just an arbitrary addition as if the lord is saying fine you can eat the steaks now which is awesome in its own right for sure that that is a huge thing but it also and you'll have to follow me closely here it, it also connects in a significant way to the first two themes we've already hit on Now, it's pretty obvious how it maps on to the cultural mandate, the dominion mandate, because this opens up new and exciting avenues by which man can provide for his people. You don't have to get so much lettuce. You can now get a bison. (laughs) Helpful when the winter is like a month away. A lot of protein. 
truly. And so this, this really is a, a new dignity and a glory that he's putting on them. It opens up new access to, to flavors and the art of cookery to extract the glory that God hid in his creation a little bit more. However, this new diet also maps onto the altar theme, I would argue, in a not so obvious, but still incredibly important way. And it's this. In order to eat the meat, the animal had to die. Notice how in the text it forbids eating the animal with its life, its lifeblood still in it. And he, and he, he says it two ways. And again, we should always be thinking, why did he just repeat himself? It's because it's important. Not only is that probably there to forbid cruelty to the animal, but more importantly, it's meant to highlight the death of the animal. Namely, that any time meat is consumed, it is because a living thing was sacrificed to do that. As you eat that dead animal, and it incorporates into your body, the miracle of digestion happens, and then it creates more life for you. This death creates life for you. That's an important principle in Christianity. <laughs> and it'll become more clear in the ceremonial law as it's part of the offering than where you're taking in that which just propitiated you. Any themes happening here? God is not merely expanding the menu, but he's building into their lives, into our lives, daily rhythms and reminders that our life is found in the death of another. And this is very important to highlight for us. Because with all the blessings of modern conveniences and technology, this is something that can be so easily missed on us now. Namely, whenever we eat meat, something died so that we could have that meal. We, we rarely, I would imagine, open our Chick-fil-A bag with a moment of sober remembrance for the chicken that gave its life for that. But you probably would if you had raised the chicken and you had been getting eggs from it for a couple months, and then you slit its throat, and then let all the blood run out. You think that would be a different experience at all? Tingles, I'm looking in your direction. I hear there's a Goldberry's Guild on this theme. I'm not even lying, I, I think that's gonna happen, and that would be not just a novel thing, a profound thing for us to understand. When it was your own hands that took the life, it's a profoundly different experience than when it happened 100 miles away in a nameless and windowless factory, and it was handed out the window to you, perfectly fried in a prepackaged box, and your only real thought is whether the barbecue sauce made it as well, not the reality that a death made this meal possible. Now, of course, I do not mean we should brood, no pun intended, over Chick-fil-A or any meal in an overly morbid and introspective way. That's not my point. But I do think there is a healthy sobriety and a deeper gratitude that comes when we realize the reason I have this meal is because the lifeblood left this animal and their death is now incorporating into my, into my life. Okay, so today we find Noah stepping out of the ark like a new Adam. That's how he's presented to us by Moses, stepping into a new world with new realities and new markers of what true progress looks like. And we've seen that, that progress doesn't come by casting off the creational design, but progress comes as we understand them and mature into them more. We've seen it through the themes of altar, dominion, diet, and lastly, through, through dignity, namely human, human dignity. 
Verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And of course, again, this echoes Genesis 1 pre-fall, where God pronounces the stunning dignity that he has bestowed upon every person of the human race. Namely, we bear the image of God. And, And he's reaffirming to Noah in this new world the Imago Dei. However, he's deepening the dignity of the Imago Dei in this world in at least two ways that are very important. First, he's establishing the principle of capital punishment. From now on, anyone who murders another human brings upon themselves a death sentence spoken by God because it is the highest outrage possible to kill one who bears the divine image. And and to this day, this verse is the grounds for why the death sentence still remains lawful, though obviously so, needs to be dealt with with care in a fallen world. That's why it is such a blessing as easy it is to take pot shots at our legal system in the history of humanity. Nobody has known um, a justice system like ours. So we praise God for that. But this is grounded in a creational reality. Indeed, the Apostle Paul acknowledges the death sentence still remains intact after Christ's resurrection. In Romans 13, 4, when he says, speaking of Christians being in subjection to lawful governing authorities, he says, if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. Just so you know, Rome didn't give spankings with swords. This is a new dignity, a new protection for humans that is established by God in a new world. However, there's another way that this verse shows a maturity in the role that the Imago Dei now plays in the world. Namely, that God now actually, for the first time, bestows this authority that is his alone. He bestows it of executing divine judgment to man. He says, by man shall his blood be shed. Or if we just continue reading in that Romans text, this is what comes next. For he is the servant of God an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And this is new. This is an important upgrade for humanity. Up until this point, we did not have this authority. Cain did not receive a death sentence. Lamech, after he he boasted, I have killed a man for wounding me, had no fear of the consequence of that in the immediate And so we saw how the world ended up when there was no law established for restraining evil. In fact, you see this in our day. The cities that are most out of control, not surprisingly at all, are the ones that have stopped enforcing the law. But now God is doing something. And he's bestowing the Imago Dei on us that was already there. I'm sorry, he's not bestowing the Imago Dei on us, but he's bestowing more dignity and more authority. That really is a true mercy for keeping order in a fallen world. However, and with this we close, even as we see this, and we see the true significance of all these things, all, all these themes that we've seen, all the way that humanity is, is maturing, that there is one line that still haunts this opening act in the new world. I didn't miss it, just so you know. It's found in verse 21 of chapter eight. The Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. 
Which means, though we're in a new world, humanity's main problem still remains. Namely, our bent and sinful nature. Yes, the seed of the woman has survived the flood, but so has the seed of the serpent. The flood may have washed the earth clean of its corruption, but it was only a temporary fix. In fact, in just a few weeks, we'll see how quickly sin rears its head again in the Noah story with the situation with Ham. So ultimately, this scene, as exciting as it is and truly instructive as it is for us as Christians, in this grand sweep of the story thus far, it leaves us longing. Longing for a better ark and longing for a better altar and longing for a deeper cleansing that can actually deal with our main problem. And that's because the entire story of Noah ultimately is meant to drive us to the Lord Jesus Christ. God's final answer to our deepest problem. Jesus Christ, the only one who can wash clean the stain of blood and sin that is upon us. And Jesus Christ, the only one who can not just upgrade the Imago Dei, but restore the Imago Dei all the way down, which is what he's doing in us moment by moment. And so this is where we'll pick up next week, namely, beneath the shadow of the gospel where we see God establish a covenant with Noah. Our Lord and our God, we are so thankful for your word. We are so thankful, Lord, for your grace upon us. And we are so thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ, where where we see even today Many good things, but one still very bad thing that there was nothing we could do to fix. We would have been with no hope in the world, with a tsunami coming our way, were it not for the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we glory in the cross. And I ask, Lord, for for those who the gospel has grown dim, Holy Spirit, that you would fan it into a brighter flame and they would stand amazed of what you have done for us through the person and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And now we'll pray the way he taught us to.